going to take this. Okay. I hope that was interesting. I hope you heard about some interesting first careers. My first uh, form of paid employment was as a newspaper delivery boy. I think they call it having a paper route in the States. Anybody else here have a paper route? Yeah, awesome. How much fun was that? Uh, if you lived in Cape Town like I did, it wasn't much fun at all because it's the Cape of Storms and the wind blows a gale every day. And uh, heaving your bike around with a bag full of papers on your back wasn't that much fun. Um, I did get glimpses of fulfillment from that when uh, my customer heartily thanked me for his newspaper, uh, and probably more importantly, when he paid me for his newspaper, and that funded my weekly chocolate and, and chips run back in the day. Um, and of course, we work in a, in a whole variety of, of ways, um, but I, f I f can't help but think that as we get older, the pressures and the frustrations of, of work and of life get a bit more focused and a bit more intense. For me, that meant kind of swapping my sweaty bicycle for a sweaty commute on the Waterloo and City Line, and the pressures of having to fund my chocolate and chips habit were swapped for worries about mortgages and paying the bills and, um, you know, was my career on path? Am I on the right field? Am I keeping pace with my, with my colleagues? Where's, where's it all going? Uh, and I, I wonder if you also uh, have shared those same aspects of fulfillment and frustration. And it seems to me that to really get a handle on these things, we need to have a, a firm basis, a firm biblical understanding of what the Bible has to say about this. And so that's what I'm going to try and do today, is just lay a foundation for us to get a, a better understanding of the frustration of work. Obviously, we can't solve all of the, the issues and the problems in, uh, in one setting, but I hope that we'll, we'll get a good basis. And as is so often the case when it comes to laying foundations, we turn to Genesis for that. So why not grab a Bible? They should be in the, in the chairs in front of you. And we're going to look at Genesis 1. I was quite concerned about having a page number, but it's the first page. It's the first page. Um, if you know anything about the story of Genesis and Genesis 1, you'll know it's the story of creation. It's God creating uh, the universe, and it's absolutely busting with work activity, God working, God planning, God making, God ordering things exactly as he wants, the, the heavens, the earth, the seas, the land, the vegetation, the animals. And at times you find God kind of sitting back and going, oh, man, that's so good. It's good, deriving real satisfaction from his work. And in verse 26, we get to the point where God makes humans. Um, so we're just going to read a couple of verses there. Read with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I don't know if you noticed at the very outset that before man and woman have even been made, God already has an idea for why they're going to be there, to rule over the earth. 
This is one of our very earliest glimpses of, of the Trinity, and it strikes me that maybe there was a, sort of a discussion going on where one of them went, hmm, here's an idea. Let's make these things called people like us, and they can rule over the stuff that we've made. They can be our agents that take control of it. And this is exactly what, what God does. You see that in verse 27. He makes people male and female in the image of God. He blesses them and then sends them off. It's kind of like he's gone, okay, right, here you go. There's your area of responsibility. Go, be fruitful, multiply, take control of the earth, subdue it for the purpose of creating a flourishing human society. Rule over all the things that I've made. It's like God creates the, his CEO, his management team. I don't know if any of you are familiar with finance, but it's, it's kind of the idea of God being a shareholder that places his capital under the control of the management team. Go there and bring the most that you can out of this. Because the creation is already bristling, busting with God's goodness. But it kind of appears that it can't quite reach its full potential until man has really worked it. Maybe one of the pictures of this is sort of precious metals in the earth that God has put there, but we've got to kind of, you know, dig them out and bring them out, bring forth the goodness of God's earth. Now, that should mean that God has just abandoned ship and left man and woman to do exactly as they please. Not every way of pulling metal out of the earth is a good one. The mandate is given under God's control. He's still the chairman of the board, if you want. It's still his earth. He's the controlling shareholder. But he gives this awesome mandate to people to rule over the earth. So that's the first point I think we should note, that God creates us to work the earth. The second thing that we can pick out of this is that work is tied to relationship. I don't know if you saw that in verse 26. Then God said, let us, plural, let us make man. Let them rule. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them rule. God may make us CEOs, but he makes us joint CEOs. This is the inheritance of every person. We all have a role to play in this creation of this fruitful society. So I wonder if that meant with uh, Adam and Eve that somebody would pick the apple, somebody would kind of beat the path to the apple tree, somebody would take the apple to the storehouse, somebody might keep inventory in the storehouse, somebody might make paper to keep inventory in the storehouse. Another person is looking after the, the people that they've multiplied, that they've been fruitful for, the little babies that have, that have come along. Each person has their role. Somebody's sweeping the path. And I think this gives a fundamental dignity and importance and relevance to every task that fulfills this mandate of creating a flourishing human society. We all have a role to play. Now, not every role does cause society to flourish, and we'll see in a minute that some things just don't. So I think we could probably see on that uh, compassion clip that not all of the things that are done under God's heaven really enhance society. Some of them are destructive. But for those actions that do move forward society, these are in compliance with God's mandate. So by the time we come to the end of Genesis 1, we've got this uh, really fantastic picture of 
God, the boss, and his employees in a, in a harmonious relationship. God has blessed them, given a task, given them something to work. The employees are in great relationship. They're kind of kicking around the Garden of Eden naked, just kind of getting on with it. It's all good. And maybe you're wondering why your workplace isn't like that. Mine, mine certainly isn't. Um, you'd be surprised to know. Uh, and the reason for that is because the story doesn't end there. Um, and it carries on. And, and for this, flip over the page to, uh, to Genesis 3. Now, you probably know uh, the story of, of the fall, how sin came into the world and broke it. And what happened? Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent. And interestingly, the serpent was something that they were told to rule over. That was part of the creation, that they were given an instruction, a mandate to rule over. The same with the, the tree, rule over the creation. But they didn't. I think it's quite interesting that the way the serpent tempted people was kind of with a promotion, actually. It's like, you, you should be like God. Actually, he's, he's keeping something away from me. I won't dwell on that any, any longer. But let's pick up the story in, in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So basically, they succumb to temptation, they sin. And all of a sudden, that perfect picture is broken. The inner peace and harmony and tranquility they had are replaced by these foreign and unwelcome uh, emotions. I don't know if you saw them. Fear, shame, grief, pre- uh, uh, guilt. Previously, they walked around freely, naked, in communion with God. Now they hide. Now they're afraid. Adam and Eve cover themselves, they separate from each other, and they start blaming each other. Adam's like, it's your fault, it was the woman's fault, it's everybody's fault other than mine. And this starts to sound probably more like the workplace that we're uh, familiar with. Some of these things, we want to hide from the boss, we want to blame shift. Again, not, not, my, not, not where I work, but maybe you're, you're familiar with that. And things go from, from bad to worse, from broken relationships, God the just judge must pronounce judgment on what's happened. And we see this in the context of work a little further down the page in verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The lush surrounds of the Garden of Eden are now replaced by thorns and thistles. Free eating has now been replaced by sweaty toil, painful toil. This is how you will earn your keep. And I suspect for many of us, certainly for me, this has been one of the major anxieties and frustrations of work. Will I have enough to eat? Will I be able to pay the bills? Will I be able to provide for myself now and in the future? 
that anxiety that comes in. And so we see here brokenness of relationship and now brokenness of the earth. But even in the midst of this, I think we can start to see just glimmers of God's goodness, God's grace shining through kind of the cracked pane of creation now. Adam and Eve, humanity, are not completely wiped out. They're still there. And the earth will still produce. It'll produce reluctantly, but there will still be food. You'll have to work at it. It'll become sweaty and painful to get it out. But it will still produce. And notice, work is never cursed. The mandate to carry on, uh, to work, carries on. And we see this in verse 23, because it's out into this reluctant world that Adam is sent. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. That mandate to continue to bring out the blessing of God in the most basic form sometimes, food from the soil, continues. In fact, I'd argue that it becomes even more of an imperative in the harsh, reluctant, broken world that we live in. And this is the world that you and I go out into every day to to work. And so I think that's a point that we need to keep in mind, that work is still good, but the context in which we work has changed. It used to be easy, now it's hard. And I think sometimes the difficulty of work almost makes us want to pile up enough food, enough resources that one day we can, we can live the dream. We can live on a yacht like, I don't know, R. Kelly or whoever it is. That was really one of the things that I coveted. I was like, yeah, I want to you know, retire on a yacht and, and not do anything. But I think we forget that actually there is a place for leisure. There is a time for luxury and relaxation. But that's not the main aim of the game. The main aim of the game is for each one of us to contribute to this flourishing society, to move it forward. For some of us, that's paid employment. For others, you might work full-time in your home or just volunteer. Maybe a lack of work is one of the main sources of frustration in your life that you want to contribute, but you can't. But each one of us does still carry this mandate to do this, to move society forward. But of course, that's not going to be easy, right? Did you notice how sin has eroded two of the basic building stones? Relationships, our own identity and relationship with God and our relationships with each other. Our own ambition and uh, desire for things sometimes creates frustration for ourselves. Maybe it creates frustration for your colleagues. Or maybe their desire for that creates frustration for you. And, of course, we work in a broken world. If you're a farmer or a builder or something like that, you probably see that at very close quarters with floods and earthquakes. Things break. They don't, they don't operate the way that they should. But I guess we've got at least two responses that we could have to this. One is when things get tough, we can potentially start to crumble under it and, and look down and, and let it get on top of us. And I acknowledge that often that's my response when, when things get difficult at work. I'm like, oh, I just want to give up. I, just, I, don't, I don't want to do it anymore. But I wonder if actually the response is rather than getting our head down, it's to lift our head up. Because the frustration of work means that we have a role to play now. But the promise of the gospel is actually that at the right time, Jesus is going to return to make whole the world. This is not the end of the story. 
There is more to life than this. The universe is going to get the most unbelievable office refurb that anybody could ever imagine, where Jesus is going to return to make things right, to make his people whole, to restore things to the way they were supposed to be, and to make the universe whole. Until then, we are to work at pointing to that, at making that heavenly reality a reality here on earth. And we'll never get it right in this life perfectly, but we can push towards it. This is a great privilege and a great responsibility, actually, to be part of this. I don't know if you recognize that song that was playing earlier, Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, but there's a line in that that says, there's a better life, and you think about it, don't you? And I think that's true. There, there is a better life, probably, probably for many of us, certainly for those, those children at Marikani. But it's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality will come when Jesus makes all things new in the new earth. But until then, as I say, our mandate continues. I don't know if you're in the habit of saying grace when you, when you get uh, your, your dinner or your lunch or whatever it is. Uh, if you do, it's a, a great thing to do. It follows Jesus' example. And we rightly thank God for the blessings that he gives us, the blessing of food But I wonder if you ever think about how that got to you. It got to you by the work of other people. That's the way God brings his blessing sometimes. That's the way we fund projects like Marikani. For some people, that means working at Marikani. For others, it means being a banker, a doctor, a lawyer, a street sweeper, a toilet cleaner, a shop clerk, a volunteer, a mum. But we're all able to contribute to this flourishing society. But I don't want to minimize or trivialize the difficulty of this. I just want to make us aware of it. So what does this mean? That's all very good. What does that mean for us on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is to keep working. Your part is important. Whether you're a volunteer or a full-time worker or a mum, whatever it is, your part is important. You have a part to play. The second thing is expect frustration. It's going to be difficult. There isn't that utopian job where absolutely everything works fantastically every day, not even being on the staff team at St. Mark's. I know, it's hard to believe, but that's true. And then the third thing is let's look forward. Let's bear in mind that one day Jesus is going to return. I wonder if you ever think about that. I only really started thinking about it this week, that I might be at my desk when Jesus comes back. Or maybe it'll be many generations hence, but that day is going to come. And that's a great thing to keep in mind. Now, I don't want this to be too theoretical, so I've asked two members of the congregation to just come up and share briefly what their experience of work frustration and fulfillment is. So Sarah and Andy, if you're around... Why don't we start with the ladies first. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us what you do? Hi, um, I'm a management accountant and I work for John Lewis. And tell us what you enjoy about your job. Um, I think some of the stuff that you covered off, actually I've realised how important it is for me just to have a job and what a blessing that is and how hard I think I would find it and how hard it must be for people who haven't got employment. Um, 
but probably the relational bit is the bit that I really enjoy about my job. Um, my job is really focused on um, building relationships with um, members of the business in the retail team and trying to help them deliver what they're trying to achieve for the partners of the organisation. Brilliant. And what do you find frustrating? Loads. Um, <laughs> I think I, I joined John Lewis um, kind of thinking it was had quite core Christian values and ideals and it kind of does in theory but um, it's not a Christian organisation and that's quite apparent um, and that can be challenging and it can be good but it can be frustrating as well um, and I think it's probably the relationships that also can be quite frustrating um, but yeah it's a place that God is refining me in. <laughs> Brilliant and how has your faith impacted your day-to-day -day, uh, life there? Um, yeah, loads of ways actually. I think it would be fair to say going back quite a few years I left God at the door when I came to work um, and I was probably Sarah outside work and a different Sarah in work um, and I have the privilege of leading a team um, and I've done leadership roles for a few years and I think I was quite secularly focused on me and what did I need to deliver and how did my team need to help me deliver what was needed for the business for me to look good. Um, and actually God's kind of been teaching me to serve them. Um, so that's been good, humbling, embarrassing, um, but good. Um, also, I've, I have a, quite a difficult relationship that I'm facing into at work at the moment. And um, having some people say, start praying for that person. I've been praying for them and that's really helped in the relationship. Um, and thirdly, actually, um, there's a prayer group at my work, which I found out about a few months ago. Um, and that's been really good, meeting with people and praying um, for the leaders of the organisation. Brilliant, thank you. Why don't you give Sarah a round of applause? <laughs> Andy Moore, Andy Moore, tell us what you do for a living. Would you believe I too am an accountant? Um, although not, not, not a management accountant, a financial accountant, and there is a small difference. Um, I work for one of the big four accountancy firms in Canary Wharf, um, I've done a few things for them, but right now, or most of my experience has been in what's called transaction services, where we are engaged to write financial due diligence documents uh, for mergers and acquisitions when they take place. Brilliant. And what do you find for, uh, fulfilling about your job? What do you enjoy about it? Well, I am an accountant and I like it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I do enjoy a debit and a credit, and I do enjoy a balance sheet which balances... Um, you've heard me say it, I can't believe it um, I like a well-structured spreadsheet um, and in, in general I, uh, I enjoy the, the high turnover of projects which we get um, I like seeing all the different kinds of businesses and getting to analyse them and seeing where all the differences lie um, and in particular most of my clients are private equity houses and I find that those guys are extremely demanding in terms of what they ask us to do but they ask unbelievably good questions and it's good to sort of interact with some of the sharpest people out there. Brilliant. And other than a non-balancing balance sheet, or, or maybe a non-balancing balance sheet, what is frustrating about your work? Um, small things, like, like I find Canary Wharf isn't the easiest commute from where I live in Putney, um, but more uh, kind of fundamental things in that the culture of the company is one where we work until the job is done and 
whatever the personal cost may be, you're, you tend to have to pay it. And I find it very difficult to make home group regularly um, or to make long-standing commitments to do something on a weekly basis. You just cannot say whether you'll be in the office until 2.30 a.m. Um, and I'm also aware that it, with that kind of culture, it, it uh, compromises some of the other interests that I have in life, some of the other things that I'd like to develop outside of the workplace. So there's a price in that regard as well. Brilliant. And how has your faith impacted your work life? It's great. Um, I just put it down to taking opportunities when they arise. And obviously that means taking opportunities to have conversations. So one time um, we were in the Hilton Hotel, Northampton. It was 1.30 a.m. We decided to go outside for a whiskey and a cigar. And quite rightly, we asked ourselves, what are we doing with our lives? And um, that, that gave me a great opportunity to share the gospel. We went to bed, I, and some of the things I got to say to my atheist colleague were quite incredible. Um, that earned me the nickname The Priest thereafter. Um, and also, there are lots of bigger opportunities, which I think sometimes in our kind of day-to-day looking at our computer, we miss them. So there was one time I got the opportunity to go and have a cup of tea with somebody else that said, oh, I know a Christian that works at your company. You should totally catch up with them. And we usually dismiss those kind of chances, don't we? But I decided, well, I could do with a cup of tea, so I'll do this. And um, it turned out that at that time, she was the leader of uh, my company's Christian society. And it's quite a large company, and it was quite a large Christian society. Um, But she was actually leaving And our conversation went so well that a couple of weeks later she said, Andy, would you actually like to take my position in this, uh, the leadership group of this Christian society? And from then on, I've been able to really, you know, have an impact. We've, I was able to suggest things like we do a Christianity Explored course, and that actually happened last year. And we've had some great um, Christian socials where we've invited people from all across Canary Wharf to come to our office and hear um, a gospel talk. Brilliant. Opportunities. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Andy. Give him a round of applause. Uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'd just like to encourage you, that step of finding other Christians in your, in your organization, uh, one guy described it to me this morning as crossing the fear boundary, um, and I know what that's like, but without exception, I've, the people that I speak to, when they do it, it's so rewarding. So what we've just done tonight is just lay a foundation. We haven't answered all the questions, but I hope it's a foundation that allows us to answer questions or at least ask questions about ambitious, uh, ambition. What should we be am- ambitious about? How do we deal with frustration? Um, how do we deal, deal with failure, disappointment? Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right job? Those are all things that we can kind of build up off this foundation. So I hope that's been encouraging. I hope you'll, you'll feel that when times get tough, uh, you're not alone. You're sharing a common experience. Um, and if I can encourage you, don't look down. Look up uh, because there's hope coming. Thank you. <laughs>